Welcome to Hospitality Forward, a podcast with the listeners in more than 100 countries. My name is Hana Lee. I am president and founder of Hana Lee Communications, an award-winning global PR agency specialized in hospitality and travel. And I'm Michael Anstendig, editor-in-chief of Hana Lee Communications, an award-winning co-author of The Japanese Art of the Cocktail, and a food and beverage writer. Helping the community has always been part of our agency's mission. We understand that a lot of business owners, bartenders, chefs, sommeliers, and others might not have the resources to hire a PR agency. So we created our podcast so that our listeners can get to know leading reporters and writers and start building relationships. Each week, our media guests from around the globe share their practical advice on how hospitality and travel professionals can be spotlighted in their stories. In fact, one of our loyal listeners got featured in the New York Times after listening to our podcast and following our media guests' tips. So, you could be next. Also, please send your favorite pitching tips from the episode to hello at hanaleecommunications.com for a chance to win a copy of our agency's book, The Japanese Art of the Cocktail. And now, moving on to the show. In this episode, we're delighted to chat with Sheila Yasmin Marikar, a freelance writer who covers culture, travel, food and beverage, and leisurely pursuits for publications such as The New Yorker, The New York Times, Airmail, New York Magazine's The Cut, and Fortune. Based in Los Angeles, Sheila is also the author of the best-selling debut novel, The Goddess Effect, and her work was included in the 2021 edition of Best American Food Writing. Hi, Sheila. Welcome to the show. So great to see you. Wonderful to see you, Hannah and Michael. Thank you for having me on. So we go way back, many years. And in fact, when we first met, you were at ABC News. So how did you get into journalism? Basically, I, I went to school uh, at Cornell University in upstate New York, and I grew up in New Jersey. So New York was always the big city. Uh, and this was also at a time when Sex in the City was on and I was, you know, religiously watching every episode. And I said, I want to have my version of that Carrie Bradshaw life. And, <laughs> and I, I majored in history and I always enjoyed reading and writing. Uh, and I tried internships at a variety of places in nonprofit at, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I, I had an internship at ABC News in Washington when I was a junior in college. It was in production for 2020. And I was, you know, logging tape and, and doing all this like kind of assistant like grunt work that you do when you're an intern. But I really enjoyed the collaborative feel of creating a news magazine segment that, you know, would be it could be 20 minutes long. It could be a whole hour long. It could be several hours. Um, and I felt like, you know, maybe this is a field that I want to continue to work in. So I I had another internship at ABC the following summer. And then I started working there as a desk assistant five days after I graduated. And And after nearly eight years at ABC News, you transitioned into being a freelance journalist for some of the most prestigious publications in the U.S. So what was that like for you? 
to be quite honest, it was a huge leap of faith. I had many wonderful learning experiences at ABC News, but by the time that I was on the cusp of 30, I had been in the same job for about five years. And my responsibilities had had changed and I, I was actually taking on more responsibility, but getting paid about the same as I had when I first took it. And it felt to me like my time there was coming to a close. So um, I, I took a, I did a really scary thing. And the day before my 30th birthday, I just, I, I left and I just said, you know, I'm going to try, I'm going to cobble together different gigs and I'm going to aggressively pitch the New York Times and see if I can get a foot in the door. And it took about, I think it was about 12 ideas uh, that they said no to before they said yes to one. And I, they made it very clear that if you screw this up, you don't get another chance. So I, I, it was, it was a, you know, a challenging moment, but in a really good way, it really felt like, okay, this is, this is my shot and I've got to take it and, and let's see where this goes. Currently you contribute to various media outlets. So could you kindly share the audience of each and how your stories are tailored? For example, what is it like writing a story for the New Yorker versus New York Magazine's The Cut? versus the New York Times. Yeah, you know, each one, even even though they all have New York in the name, uh, each one really is different and they have a distinct voice and style. And even, you know, within the New York Times, which is a huge organization, a story in the style section will have a tone that a, a story in the business section may not. Um, and of course, you know, there there is a lot of uh, uh, co-mingling between these sections, but I would say, you know, the New Yorker is a place where I feel like I personally get to play around with words and language in a way that is different from from say the New York Times. The Cut, I I've done Q and As for them. I've done personal essays. That's also its own kind of animal. You know, with the New York Times, they do want a kind of news peg. So there should be a reason that this particular uh, company or region of the world or what have you, whatever your subject is, there should be a timely reason that you're writing about it. Uh, the New Yorker, they also want that timeliness, but I think that it's less of a a must. Uh, there are interesting topics that are sort of perennially interesting. You know, I, I've, I've learned from pitching many, many stories. Every rejection and every acceptance really teaches you like, okay, this is what this particular editor likes. And this is what this publication is going to say yes to. And these are the ingredients you need to, to sort of intrigue them. There, there are um, many subjects that could work in every one of those publications, but the pitch will never be exactly the same. An idea that I would send to the New Yorker, I, I'm not going to copy and paste that and put that in an email to the New York Times. It just, it, it, you really have to take the time to specifically tailor these, uh, these ideas. So we we read somewhere that you describe yourself as a generalist. What does that mean from a practical standpoint? From a practical standpoint, it means that I don't specialize in one specific thing. I I think that you know I am generally interested in things that are sort of on the cusp of being mainstream, but are not quite yet. 
like a new trend or something that's like bubbling up. Um, but, but truly what a generalist, uh, means to me is just, I don't want to be pigeonholed into one or put in one specific box. And the reason, um, that from the outset, I had been an entertainment journalist for ABC News for about um, five or six years. There were moments that were very fulfilling and rewarding, but I got to a point where I said, I just cannot, I can't chronicle this anymore. I don't like it. It doesn't make me feel good. I don't feel like I'm putting something good out there. I never want to be put into this box again where all I can write about is entertainment or all I can write about is food or all I can do is travel. if I'm interested in something, that's what's going to make the story. So my rule is that I have to be interested and I have to be passionate about it. And I have to want to share that story with people because that's what's going to make it really sing. Well, that that really comes across in your writing. I'm so glad. Speaking of stories, uh, we'd love your Wall Street Journal article on Circle, which turns tourist sites like the Great Pyramids into pop-up nightclubs. Uh, how did that get on your radar? A good friend of mine works with Circle, and I was going to be in Italy in, I think this was the end of August, early September. And I was talking to her and she said, you've got to, if you're, if you're in Rome on this day, you should really come check out this, this event. The idea of this, uh, this concert around these kind of, they're not ancient Roman ruins, but they basically look like it. I mean, it's like, the Rome's answer to the Paramount lot in Hollywood. And um, it sounded really cool. It sounded like a, like an interesting, like fun thing to do. In addition to all the, you know, kind of typical sightseeing and eating and drinking and shopping that, that I already had planned to do in Italy. I was like, Oh yeah, this, this could be fun. And, um, and it, as I started looking into it, it seemed like a really great story. I mean, the places that circle has done concerts, like, the pyramids of Giza, the Arc de Triomphe—like really epic wonders of the world and and global landmarks—and then you merge it with this really—it's a, a style of music that I really like. This kind of like electronic, but with classical and and influences from from all sorts of genres. Um, yeah, it was it was a very fun thing to participate in, and then to write about was was fantastic. It was just a really great assignment. Another one of your stories that I enjoyed was your New Yorker article on Antonia Olympio, the New York destination manager for American Express. So given my love for hotels and travel, I found her hotel quality control job so fascinating. I want that job. So fascinating. Right? I mean, so how did you find this story and this colorful personality behind it? My husband runs his own business. And uh, for that reason, he has an American Express uh, platinum card. And there's a number on the back of it. And there's the, the sort of travel kind of benefits that you get with any of their cards. But he, he, he sort of turned me on to this idea of using the fine hotels and resorts arm of American Express. I didn't, you, you know, before we started dating, I was, I was on kayak and orbits and like all of those sites. And he told me about how you get all of these benefits, you know, like your, your fourth night free, um, early check-in, these upgrades. So anyway, this was a part of my life, um, because of him and, 
I, I was aware of sort of how the American Express benefits worked. And then I started thinking, you know, I wonder who these people are, who is on the other end of the phone when you call the number and where are their recommendations coming from? How, who do they know? How do they decide, you know, what, what do you recommend as a, a, a restaurant for dinner? That is, you know, not Michelin star, but more than fast casual. And yeah, I was just curious about who these people are and how they how they do their work. And uh, I, I contacted American Express. And that story was several months in the making, because as you can imagine, you know, a, a huge company like that, they want to be they, you know, it's a, it's a very competitive industry, credit cards, and they probably don't want to reveal everything to everyone. But uh, I was able to gain their trust to the degree that they said, sure, you can uh, follow around our destination manager for a day and, you know, see how she works. And it was so it was so cool to, you know, kind of understand how they work. We, we, we were very jealous of Antonia and her job. And <laughs> Me too. We we also loved her order of the dirty dirty martini at Bemelman's, which is always a good move. And agreed. Obviously, Bemelman's is one of our favorite spots in the city. The best. And did you know their head bartender Louise has been behind the bar for thirty four years? Wow. We love him so much. So a big shout out to Louise and. Dimitrios, who's a GM there, he always knows how to read the room. He just walk around. He makes sure everybody's happy. It's incredible. He has a psychic ability. Actually, we suggest to him, you should write a book with a title, How to Read the Room. I would absolutely read that book. And it is an art to read a room, especially that room where you've got people from from all walks of life, but you know, you've you're you're going to have famous actors and directors and regulars who live around the corner and tourists who, you know, this is like maybe the trip of a lifetime to stay at the Carlisle and have a drink at Bevelman's. I, I adore that hotel and that bar. It really is just New York in a room. And any chance I get to, to have a drink there, I will take it. <laughs> so in terms of the stories you write, do you generally propose them to an editor or are they often assigned to you at this point? How does it work for you normally? Generally, I am pitching the stories to my editors. Very rarely do I get an assignment. Uh, and I've done, I've had assignments and I'm happy to take them on. But I find that most of the editors I work with want their writers to be coming up with the ideas. And I think that it's, as as I said earlier, I think, you know, when when you when the idea is something that germinated in your own brain and you feel truly passionate about telling that story, I think that's when the best stories are told versus someone saying, hey, go do this. You know, obviously <laughs> they do it with a lot more nuance than that. But uh, I, I, as I said, I'm happy to take on assignments, but for the most part is me pitching the ideas. So speaking of stories, uh, what are some of the ones that are coming up in the next few months where you think that our listeners could be a part of? You know, I am I'm getting ready for a, a trip to Europe over the summer, and I'm very 
curious about beach club culture there. I'm curious, like where, you know, what is the best beach club to go to in, in Puglia or in the south of France? And what are the differences between um, in, in different countries and different, you know, regions within the same country? That's something that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Googling frantically, but you can't, there's a lot that you cannot learn on Google, especially things like, like, how does it feel to be in that place? And what is the the thing to order? And, um, you know, I should probably take my search to social media. I'm not sure why I haven't done that yet. But even there, like you're, you're looking at everything through the filter of a phone screen and someone else's, you know, phone screen on top of that. For our listeners who want to pitch their stories to you, could you kindly give us like your top three practical tips on how they can get your attention? Yeah, I, you know, I do look at just about every email that hits my inbox. I'm not able to reply to all of them. You know, even if I don't reply, I do appreciate knowing um, what's out there and receiving ideas. I think that the the number one thing is the, you know, the kind of level of customization that I'm doing when I'm pitching a story to a publication. I I generally need that on the other end. If someone is saying, hey, here's someone that you should know about, I I want to talk to that, say it's a chef, say it's a, a chef in a place that I haven't been to. I do need to try the food. I do need to see the restaurant. I need to have a conversation with the chef. And that's before I can even sort of think about writing about it. Because if I don't have that context, then it's I don't have enough to like make a compelling story. I guess the number one thing is that, you know, I, I do have a very long lead time. And it just it takes time, you know, I've gotten I, I, of course, like the world with the way that things move now, there are last minute things. And I, you know, sometimes a last minute thing can work, but often it's, uh, it's several conversations and, um, and, and weeks, if not months before I can actually pitch a story. And then for that pitch to get accepted for the story, for me to actually start reporting, like I just, their time patience is a hundred percent of virtue. And definitely in this case, uh, it's, it's just, you know, if you can, if you can sort of bear with a writer in the generation of the idea and and the pitching process, it's going to be, it's going to make for a better story in the end. For sure. And we're wondering, do you have any icebreakers that you would recommend for those who may not have a working relationship with you yet? Not really. I, honestly, email is best. Uh, I have had people slide into my DMs and I, I'm just not as good as at keeping up with DMs. Like I'll, I'll email somehow. I just, I remember more. Um, I will say that I do, I do see a lot of emails with exclusive in the subject line. I'm not necessarily, it's not that I, I do like to have access that not every, you know, the kind of access that the like personal one on one time, uh, with a subject that I'm say profiling, but it doesn't like exclusives are not really something that I do. So I I guess I would say you don't need to like putting exclusive in in the subject line isn't going to necessarily make me click on it. I'm going to click on it no matter what. Now let's move on to social media. Which platforms do you find the most effective of finding story ideas or people to interview? 
Definitely Instagram. I've found several people on Instagram just in the hat, like the the process of scrolling or checking out. Um, I'm not really on TikTok. I think I have a profile there, but I'm not checking it regularly. So yeah, I I'm also I'm on technically I'm on Twitter, but I also do not use it regularly. I, I don't post. Um, I I do sometimes look at it for news and just to see what people are talking about, but. Um, I would say Instagram is it. Still using it pretty frequently. So let's uh, let's circle back to your book that you mentioned. Uh, congratulations on it. It uh, skyrocketed to an Amazon number one bestseller. So could you tell our listeners about The Goddess Effect and your inspiration for writing it? Yeah, I, you know, I, I started writing The Goddess Effect in 2015, and I'd been in journalism long enough that I kind of I had a flow uh, going on, but I wanted something that was going to last a little bit longer than the news cycle. And I had not written fiction before. So I got maybe, I had an idea about, um, you know, people in LA living in a communal house, like a kind of um, a share house, like a, like a dorm type of lifestyle that you opt into a modern day commune for creatives and tech types. I had actually profiled people who lived in communes like this up in San Francisco. And that kind of gave me the idea of like, oh, that could be a cool, what a cool setting for people to meet each other that might not otherwise interact. But because I hadn't written fiction before, the idea of like plot and character development and what do you, you know, when, when, every freedom is available to you. And these these people can do absolutely anything. It was overwhelming. And after, you know, 3000 words, I was sort of like, I don't know what to do. And um, I shelved it. I thought about it. I bought books on writing. I, um, you know, there were a lot of fits and starts for about three years. And then finally, in 2018, I said, I need to, I keep talking about how I'm writing this book, and I'm not actually doing anything. I'm just, you know, like, I'm just not doing it. So I need, I turned down a lot of work. Um, it was another kind of, you know, scary thing, leap of faith uh, to, to really drill down and force myself to finish a draft. And then I did, I finished a, a draft of the book in 2018, but then the selling of it, whole other animal. Oh yes. And we know the yeah. process. It takes forever. <laughs> it takes so much love and care and process. I mean, we know it's not easy. Finding a champion in a literary agent and someone who's really going to get your book and get you and really fight for you. It's difficult. It's difficult. It's hard to know. You know, I, 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 I worked with a lot of people who were ultimately not right for me before uh, finding my agent, Claire Friedman, who's been uh, she's at Inkwell. Uh, which is based in New York. And she's been an incredible champion. And just, I, I feel very, I feel like I'm in really good hands. And as a, as a creative person, that's something that is rare. And um, I really treasure that. But uh, yeah, now I'm, I just finished the second draft of my next novel, which is called uh, Friends in Napa. It is a murder mystery set in wine country. It's about a group of friends from college who reunite in uh, Napa Valley 20 years after they've graduated. And uh, someone does end up dying, but you have to read the book to find out why and what, who it is and what happens. And it's also a study of kind of the way that friendships change over 
decades and wealth and status and um, what people covet. And of course, there's a lot of wine. It sounds delicious. <laughs> we call our podcast Hospitality Forward. So in your opinion, Sheila, what organization or person um, have you recently seen innovating and moving our industry forward? So I recently stayed at a chateau in the Loire Valley of France called Chateau du Grand Lucie. And hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. My, my French is abysmal. But uh, the, the hotelier uh, behind it is a woman named Marcy Holtus. And she also created the Washington Schoolhouse in Park City, Utah, uh, home of Sundance and, and many great ski resorts and mountain biking, all sorts of activities. Uh, but I actually stayed at the Washington Schoolhouse back when I was at ABC News. And uh, I, I was working with the movie critic Peter Travers, uh, helping him produce his uh, show that he was doing with ABC. So we were one of the some of the first guests at uh, the Washington Schoolhouse Hotel. And I was just blown away from the start. Just the, it's a boutique hotel that um, with with uh, a historic background, I believe it's from the 18th century. Uh, but uh, Marcy had restored it and kind of brought it up to date and with just the most plush furnishings, incredible art. It, it was cozy yet modern. And the food and beverage uh, program was was really fantastic. And now the Chateau in France is her second project. And um, I, I talked with her recently and I'm just, I is so, so pleasantly surprised and, and charmed by her approach to hospitality in the sense that she she this is her second career she had a very successful career in finance before she became a hotelier but uh, she told me you know i didn't know a lot and i just approached it as i want to create places where i would want to stay so i don't she's breaking rules in the sense that she she didn't even know the rules to begin with so things like like creating um you know instead of uniforms for the staff she creates a lookbook like like a, a fashion designer and is sort of like okay here we're not going to make all of you wear the same thing because that would be sort of um uh you know you all have personality and people want to be able to maybe pick out what they they want to wear uh day in and day out and so uh she she and her team they all kind of come together and agree on like here here are some things that we're going to fold into the look this season and she's coming at it from a different angle and it really you know when you stay at her hotels you feel taken care of in a way that like it's just, like they just anticipate your needs before you even know what you want it's really fantastic that's the ultimate yeah we are sold it's definitely on our bucket list absolutely all right it's time for a fun question what is your favorite cocktail and if you could choose one person who would you share the drink with and why? Oh boy. Okay, that's hard. Uh, well, the first the first part of that answer is uh, uh, it's either a Negroni or a dirty martini. The the martini actually at at the Chateau in France. I it's still it's still on my mind. It was the most perfect dirty martini I've ever had, and 
I don't know. I, I, it was a French gin. I, I don't know. They, it was just perfect. But, um, with the Negroni, the, um, Fato, oh man, it's a, it's an alternative to Camp, Campari, um, which somehow I think that, um, Campari in Europe tastes different than Campari here. Your, your, your cocktail experts. Can you tell me if that's, if that's, uh, true? I think everything tastes different in Europe. <laughs> I mean, just being there and the excitement of being there and the context and, uh, you know, the, the smells, the, the aromas, the, the people, I mean, everything just gives it a distinct experience. So, yeah, I mean, it might technically be the identical molecules, but because of the experience and the context, it's going to taste different. Maybe that's what it is, because I enjoy Campari in Europe in a way that I do not in the United States. And when I make a Negroni at home, I'm using Faccia Brutto Aperitivo, which I believe is made in Brooklyn. And uh, I think it's fantastic. But as for who I would share it with, I, if, I, if I'm being honest, I would have to say my father, uh, my late father, just because I would love to have another drink with him. But also Miles Davis, who was one of his favorite artists and is also one of mine. And I've listened to uh, kind of blue countless times at this point. It is also my like sort of when I'm doing a cocktail hour at home, that's the album that I put on. So it would be fun to have a cocktail with Miles Davis, considering that he has been a fixture of my cocktail hours for a long time. And um, you travel a lot for your job. So is there any particular country that you are itching to travel? Yes. And the first one that comes to mind is the Philippines. I have, I've seen pictures, I've heard it's, it's absolutely incredible. And it's not, not that it's, um, not that it's like off the radar, it's very much on the radar, but it has not gotten the kind of attention internationally from an international travelers, travelers that say Thailand or the Maldives or, um, other countries in that region have gotten. So Definitely the Philippines. Um, I also really want to go to Mallorca. Never been there. Have heard it's beautiful. All right. So what's the best way for our listeners to reach you to pitch their stories? There is my website where there's a contact me form and those go directly to me. So that is, that's a great way to, to reach me. It's SheilaYasminMarikar.com. Sheila, thank you so much for your time, and we had a blast. We can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's a pleasure to talk with you, and it's always, I'm always happy to see your faces. That was a fascinating conversation. Now that you know what Sheila is looking for, please feel free to reach out to her and introduce yourself. And don't forget to mention that you heard her on our Hospitality Forward podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Also, for all media guests to date, you can find their information and episodes on our agency's website, www.hanaleecommunications.com. See you next week. Until then, join us as we move hospitality forward together.